0: I got turned off. Okay, now now I know I know that uh, uh, Pastor Chad's going to introduce Tim, but I just wanted to say that Tim and my younger brother played basketball together at CSU University, Colorado State University, and that's where I first met Tim. And uh, he was a little older than my brother, and my brother admired him greatly, and. they both looked each other in the eye, um, and uh, I never looked my little brother in the eye. Uh, okay, and you'll see why when Tim comes up.
1: Tim is quite tall. I've I've learned. Um, I was blessed yesterday to get to meet with Tim and his wife Janet. Uh, they are both on staff with World Venture, and they came in yesterday and did a tune-up with our missions committee. So I was very thankful for that. And because world missions is so much so much of the heartbeat here at first baptist i think it's important to hear from folks who are a close part of it and a little bit more about tim and janet Uh, janet was raised in pow wyoming until 15 years of age and tim grew up in grand junction colorado they met at colorado state university and lived in the same dorm they were married during tim's senior year of school After a six-year stint of playing basketball with athletes in action, Tim and Janet believed that God was calling them into missions. After Tim finished seminary, they headed to Italy, where they were involved in evangelism, church planting, and leadership training. They spent 27 years in Rome and the outlying areas, either in church planting or building the church. They were called away from Italy in 2014 and were called into recruiting new laborers to be sent into the harvest. Tim works mainly with sending students overseas to be involved in short-term missions trips. It usually takes about three to five short-term mission trips before they will decide to become career missionaries. Janet works with appointees who are in the process of raising their support and then being deployed all around the world. At the present time, she has 16 units, which would be couples or, or individuals going to the mission field, with whom she mentors. Tim, please come up. Thank you.
0: Do you remember how to remember my name? You take the T and you put it in the H place, and the H, you put it in the T place, and you get him tall. That's a good way of remembering my name. If you have a good way of remembering your name, I would love to know it, because you know, they say when the face clears, the mind fades. And my, my mind is fading. And so uh, anything to remember your name would be a real benefit for me. And I would appreciate it so much. You know, um, we don't think about this too much, but this is a missionary book. And uh, God is a missionary God. Uh, God wants every member of the church to enter in the process of becoming a great commissioned Christian or a disciple. And a disciple is a learner. But it's not a learner where you learn so well you can regurgitate the right answers on a test and get 100. That's not the learner that Jesus has in mind. Jesus has in mind the learner of an inherent or one who adheres And so it's like, we become like Jesus. We begin to think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, minister like Jesus. His core values are our core values. His core beliefs are our core beliefs. We become like him. That is a disciple. That's a great commission Christian. And every pastor wants the community of Christ, this being First Baptist here, to become a group of Great Commission Christians. And in order to become a group of Great Commission Christians, we need to be Christ-like. And in order to be Christ-like, I think a good way is to pass three exams each day, three tests each day. And we see those three tests in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It says... And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I like what Luke 9.23 says. Luke says, take up his cross daily. And I think we could say that these are daily things that you and I, if we want to become disciples, if we want to become great commissioned Christians, need to do. They're like our calisthenics before our workout. Uh, We warm up, they're like the layups and the the dribbling exercises and the ball handling exercises that you do with basketball before you even start practice. They're the precursors of the Christian life, these three things, and they are so important and I'd like to take them in reverse order. Um, It says, uh, follow me, and I entitled that piece of this verse is, who leads your life? Who leads your life? When the disciples first came to Jesus, they thought they led their life. They chose their spouse, they chose their job, they chose their location, they chose what they wanted to do, their recreation. And Jesus comes in as this revolutionary And he challenges a big challenge, a big, fat, hairy, audacious challenge. He says, drop your job. Follow me. Now, if this man's an engineer, and he has an engineering company, and Jesus walks up and says, hey, drop your job. Follow me. That'd be a big ask. I mean, that would be a revolutionary ask. And that's what Jesus did. If you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16, he says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. All 12, all 12 disciples, when Jesus, at the initiation of his ministry, comes up and says, Drop your temporal gainful employment, follow me, they did. And that was radical. Matthew drops his tax-collecting booth. Others dropped what they were doing, and they followed Jesus. I think they followed Jesus not because they thought at that point that he was God. I don't think they had done the math yet and connected the dots to reach that point. I think they followed Jesus because he was a revolutionary and they want to change. You see, they're in the context of the Roman Empire and they are sick to death with the Romans. They are sick of the Romans coming in, raping their adolescent daughters and their wives, burning their crops in the field and in storage, taking their possessions and then They are sick to their nostrils with taxes. You think we're taxed. They're taxed to death. You cross a border, you're taxed. You cross a street, you're taxed. You have a heavy load, you're taxed. You have something on your wagon that shouldn't be there, you're taxed for that. You're taxed when you have too much, you're taxed when you have too little. You're taxed when you change your money, you go across the border, you're taxed. You're taxed, you're taxed. And Jesus comes in and what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they did the math and they said, you know, this Jesus is special. And if he is going to be a king of the kingdom of heaven, maybe I should follow him. And so they dropped whatever they had and they followed him. And I think they first did it because they thought that Jesus was a revolutionary. But they got it right. The first exam each day is, follow me. And so when God says, follow me, he leads, they follow, and they got it right. And we need to applaud them for that. You know, Ken and Bola Taylor were missionaries in Japan They were both uh, from the Philippines. Ken was raised in the Philippines. Right after Bola's birth, her family moved to California. But then Bola went back to the Philippines when she was in her 20s. They were both very musically inclined. They were both gifted. Ken was a big band leader. And he was one of the top big band leaders all the way in Southeast Asia. Bola was a singer, and she was a great singer, and she went to the Philippines in the 20s, and she got a gig with a singer by the name of Nora Aunor. And Nora Aunor was so popular in that part of Asia that her nickname was Superstar. You didn't go and see Nora Aunor; you went to see and hear Superstar. Well, Ken and Bola knew one another because they were both in the same profession. And while they were doing the same gig in in Singapore, uh, they got together for dinner. And um, Bola knew that Ken's motto was uh, love, sex, and rock and roll. I mean, he he was a partier. And he always had a girlfriend. And he had a girlfriend with him back in the hotel when he was dating Bola that first night in Singapore. And she knew that about him. Bola was very attra- uh, Ken was very attracted to Bola's maturity. And Ken asked Bola during that time, I'd like to take you out. And Bola said, sure, we can date, but I'm never going to be intimate with a man until marriage. So they dated for three years. It was up and down. Uh, then they moved back to the States. And uh, they were involved in the music industry in LA, and they both became very, very successful. And uh, Ken came to Christ through the Filipino church in LA, and he began to change. And they dated three more years, and then uh, Bola came to Christ. uh, Or Bola came to Christ, and then they dated three more years, and then they got married. And uh, Ken said, I married a 27-year-old virgin but he was very, very respectful of Bola and her values. And um, so um, you see this little gal right here. That's the youngest daughter. When she was in the womb of Bola, Ken and Bola went to Japan for a missions trip. And they went for two, uh, two weeks, and the whole purpose was to see if they could use their musical talents in Japan in order to reach the Japanese. Ken loved it. He loved everything about Japan. Uh, There's tons of people in Japan, 120 million people on a small island. And he loved the hubbub. He loved the rush. He loved the energy. He loved all the people around Bola hated it. Bola said, I am never going back to Japan. How can I live the American dream if I go to Japan? How can I give away my two cars, my house, my good job, and go to a people that don't even speak English and is one of the most expensive places in the world uh, to live? Uh, Bola hated and despised Japan. And every time Ken brought it up, I think God is calling us to Japan. Bola said, not on my watch, he's not. And there was pushback. Finally, Ken came to Bola and said, two people united in a covenant of marriage cannot successfully go in two entirely different directions. We are a house divided. But Ken said, since I made the covenant of marriage with you, I'm not going to force you to go to Japan. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I want you to pray about it. I want you to seek the Lord. When he tells you to go to Japan, we'll go. Well, music has been popular in Japan for decades. Now the fad has turned into an effective evangelistic tool.
2: That's right, Lucille. Talusan has the story. Historically, it's been difficult to share the gospel with people in Japan. Traditional Japanese faiths like Buddhism and Shintoism have many gods, and people avoid religions that make specific claims like Christianity. Most Japanese worship millions of gods, but through a music workshop, Japanese non-Christians are learning to sing to the only one true God. The movie Sister Act made black gospel music popular in Japan. Eleven years ago, missionary Ken Taylor saw an opportunity to use the fad to teach the Japanese about Jesus Christ. The former nightclub entertainer began holding black gospel workshops in community centers. Ken then partnered with Christian churches, opening doors for developing relationships between the non-Christian choir members and members of the church.
1: The end goal is that we see lives transformed. Within that two hour session, they're not just learning how to sing black gospel music, but more than that, they're really experiencing church because there's really fellowship, there's worship, there is uh, uh, sharing of the word.
2: The Hallelujah Gospel Ministry broke down barriers between Christians and non-Christians. It opened the church to the community. And it's a very unique ministry because the target of the outreach are the choir members themselves. It may be a slow process, but the members testify that the black gospel workshops are making them better persons. And some of them convert to Christianity. I used to have low self-esteem. I studied philosophy and did my rituals at Shinto Shrine, but nothing worked. But within one year in the choir, I learned about Jesus when I studied the lyrics of the songs. So now I am a Christian. I am more patient with our children, and I am more confident about myself. I am not a Christian, but as I study the words of the songs, I am finding new meaning in my life. Today there is a black gospel choir in 50 churches all over Japan. They call themselves the Hallelujah Gospel Family. Twice a year, they come together in a big concert where the Japanese non-Christians share the message of Christ to their families and friends through the gospel music they
1: sing. hundred percent of the people who step into these choirs are being touched by the Spirit of God. God is at work in a mighty, mighty way here in Japan.
2: Lucille Toulousen, CBN News, Tokyo. Did you know that
1: was happening in Japan? I
2: did actually, it's a, quite an incredible tradition that the Japanese, they love black costumes.
0: it's <laughs> awesome. Wonderful. This is a picture of Ken and Bola, about three years ago. Uh, two years ago, Bola died. Uh, she died of a brain tumor. Uh, but she made a significant statement. Uh, she told Ken, when she was on her deathbed, I want to be buried in Japan. And I want to emphasize that when God leads, I follow. And Bola got to the point where she passed that test each and every day. God called her to Japan. She was going to go to Japan and stay there and even be buried there, because that was what God was leading her to do. So that's the first exam. Uh, who, who leads, Christ leads. We need to make sure of that in our lives, in our souls, our spiritual walk, each and every day. It's really important. Then the second exam is we take up our cross daily. I entitled this, Who Sits on the Throne? it, it um, directly relates to who's in charge of your life. Who leads? God leads. Who's in charge? Who's on the throne? Well, God's in charge. We read the passage today about Jesus uh, going across uh, the lake with his disciples, and they hit a storm. Well, right before that, they were in northern Galilee, and can you imagine... Uh, placing everybody in this room uh, in, in half of it, and then you place Jesus there, and he's ministering, and that's about what it was like each and every day for Jesus to minister. He was just bombarded with people all day long, touching him, talking to him, wanting him to heal, wanting him to intervene, and all day long, and can you imagine at the end of the day, he's peopled out. And not only peopled out, he's pooped out. And so he says to his disciples, let's go across to the other side. And they get into this boat. There's several boats, and it must have been a pretty good-sized boat. Uh, And the disciples are probably not even rowing. It's probably somebody else. And Jesus goes to the back of the boat, and there's a cushion on the bench. And he lays down, and within two seconds, he is asleep. He's he's gone. Leave him alone. Well, it must have been a summer day because the evaporation on the Lake of Galilee goes up into the atmosphere. It catches the wind and goes to the northeast and it hits the mountains, the Golan Heights, which are about 10,000 feet in elevation. And it starts to vortex and spin a little bit. And then it, it catches some more Uh, humidity and starts to spin and then it goes south again and it catches the warm air coming up from the Sea of Galilee again and it is really whipping. It's like a a tornado and it hits that lake and it makes that lake a washing machine. There are uh, waves that are 20 feet high. They're crashing over the boat. It's about ready to capsize. The disciples are frantic. They probably are jettisoning anything that they can find to lighten the boat, to keep it up. They're bailing everything that they can over the water as much as they can, and there's no way that they're going to survive. They are just traumatized. What do they do? They don't know what to do. They come and they call Jesus, 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 we're perishing, we're perishing. Jesus wakes up, probably a little frustrated, and... uh, he looks at the water. Peace be still. Two miracles happen. Immediately, the storm is passed. It's immediately calm, tranquil. Storms don't usually pass like that. Secondly, the sea is like glass, completely still. I'm told that after a heavy storm, it takes hours for the sea and the lakes to calm down. Two miracles right then. And he looks at the disciples, and he goes, why, where's your faith? Why do you doubt? Why does he ask that? Did you miss it? He tells them before, let's go to the other side now this is the infinite all-sovereign all omnipotent god and when he says something like let's go to the other side that means that you're going to go to the other side it doesn't mean that you might hit a, a typhoon and a tempest right in the middle you might be struck with cancer divorce bankruptcy something that rocks your world and takes you and puts you on the map. But Jesus says, we're going to the other side. He says, where's your faith? We're going to the other side. Just trust me. We'll get there. This is just a small light, momentary interruption in your walk of faith. But as the song says, keep your eye on God. Jesus, he's on the throne, he's God, he says he's going to get you to the other side, and he will. And that is an exam we need to pass each day. We place him on the throne even when we're in the typhoon because we know that he's going to take us to the other side. Paul always looked future, and he always called his affliction, momentary light affliction, it wasn't worth sweating about because he knew he was going to the other side. It was real to him. And nothing that stood in the way could be an obstacle at that point. Because for Paul, Jesus was on the throne and he was the one that was in charge each and every day. Chaz and Stephanie... Are um, a young couple. They met at the World Venture Office uh, several years ago, and they were both going to the Ivory Coast. They were located in the same city, and they're about 30 minute bike ride away. So they saw one another on occasion. Well, after they got back from um, the Ivory Coast after their ministry for about a year, um, they started to write and get together, and, and they started to, to fall in love, and they got married. And um, uh, one thing that happened to them, though, is they could not get uh, the Ivory Coast out of their mind, and they could not get the Jula people out of their mind. The Jula people are 4.8 million people in Ivory Coast, Muslim, in fact, the first Jula believer came to Christ last month and we're rejoicing in that. Uh, But they're totally unreached. And uh, Chaz and and Stephanie, especially Stephanie goes, well, who's gonna reach the Jula? who's gonna take the gospel to them? And she kept asking Chaz that. And Chaz decided, yeah, you know, the, we're supposed to be Great Commission Christians and that's supposed to be our Great Commission. And Chaz came to the conclusion that their responsibility is to take the gospel to the Jew. Well, if you look at Chaz and, Jew, uh, and Stephanie, it doesn't make too much sense. I mean, they're lily white, yeah. redheads. They have little Adeline there, and uh, when they take that little Adeline in the, con- in the context of the Jula people uh, who are charcoal black, and they, those women touch that little baby, and touch the hair, and touch the cheeks, and touch, touch everything about that little baby, I mean, that little baby's gonna be a museum piece. Yeah. <laughs> and they're gonna be all over them And they're going to wonder why uh, a white Anglo-Saxon couple uh, came to the Jula. Well, they came because uh, Chaz and Stephanie realize that God is on the throne of their life and that they submit to his call. And they both feel so strongly called to the Ivory Coast that they're stepping out on faith. Chaz wakes up almost every week just wondering and gripped with the fact, we need to get to the Jula people. How are they gonna hear the gospel unless we come? And the Great Commission has become his Great Commission. And the Jula people has become his people. And he's dedicated to it. It's been real hard for them They've raised 60% of their uh, support in the Denver area. Now they're in Oregon for four or five months. They've been in a different bed about every three days. Baby's been uh, fussy. It hasn't been comfortable. It's been hard. It's been difficult. And each and every day they need to pass that test. Uh, Jesus is on the throne. He's the one that leads, I follow. He's the one who is in charge, I submit. Tests that you and I pass each day, and if we pass them, we become great commission Christians, disciples, who can make a difference in the lives of people who don't know him for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's, it's important it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for us. And the third exam is, it says, uh, deny yourself. And I entitled that, who chooses for me? Um, who chooses? Um, do I choose my core values or does Jesus choose? My core values? Do I choose my worldview or does Jesus choose my worldview? Do I choose my core beliefs or does Jesus choose my core beliefs? If you look at Mark 10, 32, Mark 10, 32, Jesus is resolute on going to Jerusalem and he's with his disciples and he tells them that he's going to die there. And the disciples are amazed and afraid. They're amazed that Jesus Christ is going back to Jerusalem because he knows that the Jews are going to turn them over to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are going to take Jesus out. And why do you do that? Why do you give up your life like that? Well, Jesus' core value was to give up his life. The disciples' core value was to save their life at that time and to be comfortable. And they're afraid. They're afraid that if you take Jesus out of the equation, their revolutionary is taken out of the equation, and then they aren't going to have this opportunity to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. So immediately after that, James and John come to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, we want to ask you a question. And Jesus says, go ahead, ask it. And they say, well, can I sit on the right hand of your throne and the left hand of your throne in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, you don't know what you're asking. Can you be baptized with my baptism? Can you drink the cup that I drink? And what he's saying is, will you die for me? And uh, they said, yeah, we'll do that. Well... They didn't do it then, but they did it eventually. And all the disciples died for Christ, except for John, in the way that they lived and in the values that they took. But at this point, they don't have the values of Jesus. They have secular world values. And those secular world values are governing them. They want the authority of the world. They want to be treated like a Roman empire and a Roman emperor. They want to be acknowledged. They want people to bow down to them. They want the money of the kingdom. They want the prestige of the kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. You see, the world says, take care of number one. Jesus says, take care of the other. The world says, secular greatness is to rule over others, to acquire highest position. Spiritual greatness is measured in the service of others, to be last, to be servant of all, to suffer. Secular greatness wants to be first, sit on the throne, listen to WIFM, what's in it for me? Spiritual greatness seeks to be last, a slave, serve. Listen to W I F H, what's in it for him. The world says, be comfortable, be safe, avoid conflict, avoid service, avoid sacrifice. Jesus says, sacrifice yourself, be uncomfortable. The reward is eternal. This is mere light, temporary affliction. Look future. Look at what will be yours and don't worry about now. Three lessons we need to pass each and every day. Who leads? Jesus leads, I follow. Who's on the throne? Jesus is on the throne, we submit. And then who chooses our values, our core beliefs, our way of living. Jesus does, and we know that that is the best way for us. Roger and Lynn Smith are missionaries to Mozambique. And they've learned that the best way to reach the Muslims is to serve them. Uh, Roger started an egg business. And the egg business was so successful and he employed several Muslim men, and several of those Muslim men came to Christ in the context of working under Roger, as Roger is demonstrating the love of Christ to them as an employer. And then Roger and Lynn had three Muslim men live in their home for three or four years, and Roger and Lynn said, we want them to see Christianity up close and personal. We want them to see how we love one another, how we speak to one another, how we treat one another, how we worship, how we serve, how we live. And some of those men came to Christ. Well, those are values that we would choose. Those are Christ's values. Serving the other, inviting them into your home for three years or four, huge commitment. Well, the egg business crashed because the government saw that Roger and Lynn were making too much money, so they put a kind of a legal sanction on the business and shut it down. Well, Roger and Lynn decided that they would do something else. There's a little island off the coast of Mozambique of 28,000 uh, 28, people, and they're all Muslims. This is a slave gate. You see these all over Africa. It's where um, they would take the slaves, they'd put them on the ships, and they would leave, and they would never come back, and that's a gate that says, once you pass through this gate, you're never coming back. Uh, it's similar to when we trust Christ. Uh, we say, you, you lead, I follow. You sit on the throne, uh, I don't, I submit. Uh, you choose for me the values that I have. I'm never coming back. That's kind of a good application of that. Well, Roger and Lynn decided that there were several dilapidated buildings on the coast of this island. you see that one in the background, left-hand corner? He bought several of those for next to nothing. And he has been uh, remodeling them. And he's made a hotel, bed and breakfast, and a restaurant, and several different things and he's employing Muslims in all of these endeavors. And there are many, many Muslims that are getting to know Roger and Lynn's uh, Jesus by the way that Roger and Lynn are serving them. So this five-star restaurant where the tourists come, it employs the Muslims and gives them a legal and an honest occupation. And they call it the rickshaw. And people come and enjoy the view and enjoy the tranquility. Uh, Roger and Lynn even uh, employ uh, national Muslim women from the island. And they come in in their native festive outfits. And they dance and they do different things. I imagine they're paid. This is something that he is serving them by giving them an occupation. And uh, helping them build a restaurant by serving Muslims. This is Jonathan Edwards, and this is the kind of thing that we are involved in right now. Jonathan Edwards has an undergraduate degree in business, and he's worked for the Marriott for six years now in hotel management, and he's quite good at it. He also has a seminary degree, and he's going to go to Mozambique and work with Roger to improve the business, to make it more effective and efficient, and more. Um, more um, uh, feasible. Roger doesn't know how to do that, but Jonathan does. And he'll be there two years. Pray for Jonathan. He's having a difficult time getting his visa. We've had to delay him for a month. He was gonna go in October, but now he's going at the end of November because we just can't get his visa. But he's going to help Roger, and he's going to serve. And that's what Roger and Lynn are doing. They are serving. And they're passing that test each and every day, which is who chooses for me? What values do I choose? What beliefs do I choose? What uh, comportment and behavior do I choose? I pass that test each and every day and I tell Jesus, I choose you, your values. Who do I follow? Who leads? I pass that test each and every day, and I say, Jesus, you lead. And who's on the throne? Jesus is on the throne. I do what he wants me to do. I submit. I pass that test each and every day. May we become great-commissioned Christians like that for the advancement of the gospel, for the glory of God, for the obedience of Christ. In the name of Jesus, amen.